Anuchim Haboyim B'Shem Hashem Berachnuchim V'Es Hashem Welcome to our weekly and we mean weekly Wednesday night Shir we're back on track of course for Wednesday nights Baruch Hashem Tonight's Shir has several dedications to it for somebody recently unfortunately this past Shabbos on Hey Tevis he passed and Zaram Baruch now Yehuda Halevi Shalom Shalom there's one dedication for tonight also Amelia Basara which we dedicated last week as well Allah Shalom and Simi Bat Shaluka, I believe it's pronounced. Allah Shalom. This year is Chosam, the Nishmasam. May the Nishamas have Aliyah. May they be presented up on high. Up on high, represented by the Almighty, representing the families. Welcome back, Atlanta, Georgia. Represented by their families. I guess it's only apropos that I give a, a, a mini eulogy, very mini eulogy for Aram Baruch. Aram Baruch Halevi, Ben Yehuda. Thirty-seven years that I knew him, a Jew that was very, very into being mesameach, making people happy, very musically inclined. Played for many years by Simchas Beis Hashaeva here in Crown Heights. Raised a wonderful family, very fine and from children. Unfortunately, succumbed to an illness. He had a, a tumor in his brain. When I went to visit him the first time in the hospital, after discovering his brain tumor, the reason that the family discovered the brain tumor was because he couldn't talk. He just couldn't verbalize. He was talking slurred. He was talking... It was very awkward, and it, it was became a problem. Where's my glasses? And it became a situation. He just he knew what he wanted to say. He knew what he was going to say. Just couldn't get the word out. And this, for a person like him, it was very, very difficult. He was a very, very sociable person. When he played by weddings, he played by simchas. People always were just enthralled with his music. He'd always go down after the Chasen Kala came in at the first dance. He would go over to check with the Chasen Kala. Was it okay? Was this the type of music you wanted to hear? Interesting, I was sitting today by the Shiva and another musician who played very often with him. Anyone that played with him just loved him. <laughs> the musician said, that they played a wedding once. It was the night before Thanksgiving. And the Chassan Kala were about to come in. And the bartender looked up to, they were up on a, on a balcony, the musicians. And the bartender looked up to the musicians and said, The Kala would want for you to play, I don't know, some kind of song that has to do with the turkey. I don't know what the song is. It's a, apparently, it's a known thing amongst musicians, this song. And he played that for their entrance song. So when Aaron went down later to 
find out from the Chazan Kala everything's okay. She said it was beautiful, the Kala said, but what was that song you played when we came in? Apparently the bartender pulled a prank on him. On his later years, every spare moment, he found him with a Tehillim. He always, no matter what he was working at, he was in the jewelry field, working with his father, music field, as we said. Later he worked in lighting. He did whatever he could to try to help to support his family. And unfortunately, as I said, this past Shabbos, again, the person that passes on Shabbos Go straight to Ganadin. Gehenim is not open on Shabbos. They go straight to Ganadin for that, and the mere fact that he suffered for this year and a half with his brain tumor, the way he suffered was immeasurable. So, Arbaruch, Arbaruch as we called him, we made a for your family. I mean, he was buried immediately. He passed away Shabbos morning. They buried him in Matzah Shabbos in New Jersey. They have a cemetery in Moshech Sidi Shekihila. And they have access to it on Matzah Shabbos as well. He was buried in Matzah Shabbos. And what more I propose week is that to be buried, to die, to pass than the week of representing Parashas Vayichi. Vayichi Yaakov Beretz Mitzrayim Beretz Mugoliyoviv he left to Meretz Megoliyoviv. He lived in Mitzrayim for the many years that he lived in Egypt. But the Pasha talks about his passing. Why you call it Vayichi? And the Gemara tells us, Ma'hu b'chayim, ma'zare b'chayim, afu b'chayim. As long as his children follow in his footsteps and live his life, and live the lifestyle that he gave them, he too will live on perpetually. We find very ironically in this week's parsha a sixuch. A negotiation, a problem that came about amongst different peoples. We had it in last week's parsha. We have it in this week's parsha. Continuing, we have a story of lack of trust. We have a story where people are afraid of revenge. God forbid. Needless to say, both cases. They were baseless. The suspicions were baseless. The concept was baseless. We see that by Yaakov. It's around the corner. Going around the corner. We see by Yaakov, you know, his children come down to Egypt and they find out in last week's Pasha that Yosef is the king. And as they're going through what they're going through with Yosef, they say, uh-oh, without knowing who he was, maybe we're being punished for what we did to our brother. Then they discover the ultimate truth. This is their brother. Now they're even more scared than they were before. Now they're concerned that he's going to let He's going to take revenge for all they did to him. But then they saw how involved he was with his father. Is his father still alive? Is his father still here? (coughs) So they knew they were covered. They knew that he would never hurt, insult his father. But at the end of our parasha we see Yaakov passes and again the brothers start to shake to tremble perhaps, perhaps that Yosef now will take this revenge upon us 
And that is towards the end of the Pasha until we hear that Yosef passes, of course, without God forbid doing anything to his brothers. We know the beginning and the end always have to be intertwined one with the other. What is the beginning of Ayichi and the end of Ayichi in that case have to do with one another? The beginning of Ayichi, again Yosef is suspected of taking revenge. Yaakov calls Yosef in and says, I'm about to pass. I need you to promise me that you will bury me in Hebron. And then Yaakov starts a very interesting dialogue. I was traveling to Padanarom. Mesa Olai Rochel. Your mother Rachel passed away. And I buried Vekberel Shom Beis Lochem. And I buried her there in Beis Lochem. And we discussed before Beis Lachem doesn't make sense for a cemetery to be called House of Bread. So when we refer to how Beis Lachem, why did Yaakov call it Beis Lachem? Because it was a house of bread for prayer. It was a grave, but this is a place, that Rashi tells us, a place where the Jews would be able to pray when they went into exile. Yosef himself prayed there as he was being brought down to Mitzrayim. And the Yidin, as they went down to Bavel, prayed there. And tonight, being Asar Batevis, we'll discuss that as well. Excuse me. And Yaakov tells Yosef a very valid excuse why he had to bury Rachel, why he had to bury his mother Rachel there and not in Maris HaMachpelah. Not where he's going to be buried. Not where the forefathers are buried. Why? Why tell Yosef this story? Yosef was well aware of this story. It was by the birth of Binyamin. Yosef was Binyamin's older brother. He knew very well that his mother was not buried in Hebron. Why the whole died. And he knew exactly what happened at the time, where they were, how they were traveling. Why is Yaakov telling this story? Yaakov indeed was concerned. He was relying on Yosef the king to get him to be buried in Hebron. Because the fact of the matter was that everybody knew that Egypt, the home of Israel, was blessed from Yaakov's presence. So it was very likely that God forbid the Egyptians would want Yaakov to be buried in Egypt, which first of all, Yaakov knew would be plagued, the earth would be plagued with all the ten plagues, he didn't want to be buried there during that time. Second of all, Yaakov knew they would make a deity of him, they would make his grave a shrine and a god, because Yaakov was so blessed. Many different concerns that arose here on Yaakov's behalf. So Yaakov said, no way. And besides which, he belonged to Maris HaMachpelah. He belonged with Avram and Yitzchak. So he wanted Yosef to guarantee him that he's going to take And the only one that could would be Yosef. Because the Egyptians were going to put up, Pari himself, put up a protest. Don't take him out of here. We want him here. <coughs> Yosef had to pull strings. Yosef had to pull rank to have Yaakov removed from Mitzrayim and buried in Hebron. So in other words, he's on the mercy of Yosef. But Yosef might turn around and say, Tata, I'm sorry. You didn't do well with my mother. You didn't put her where she belonged. I'm not rushing to put you in your place that you're requesting. So Yaakov Rahman al is concerned that Yosef, God forbid, would take revenge over the fact that he did not bury Rachel Emenu in Maras HaMachpelah. So he's explaining to Yosef, as he's telling him, please take me to Hebron, he's explaining to Yosef what transpired with Rachel. 
This was something that was in the hand of God, not my fault, not something I wanted to punish her, God forbid, not something I wanted to deprive her. I want to be with her. But it was not meant to be, because she is the mother. She is the Akeris of the mothers. She is the most special of all the mothers. So much so, that Rachel Mevakal Baneha, when Rachel cries, and we spoke about this before, when Rachel cries for her children, the Almighty says, Yashsachar Lefulaseich. There's reward for what you are saying, because what you have done. And therefore, Vishavabonam Likvulam. Therefore, the Almighty will return the Jews to their boundaries because Rachel Emenu's voice cannot be quieted. So we find again in the beginning of the Pasha, Yosef being suspected, God forbid, of revenge. And Yosef comes through with flying colors. God forbid would he take revenge on his father for sure. And then definitely not at the end of the Pasha on his brothers. So a theme that we perhaps can place to the Pasha's Vayechi here Ma Zari Bechayim Afu Bechayim As his children live on so he lives on. What legacy do we take from the Pasha of Vayechi? The dangers the peril of revenge. Chas V'chalila should one ever take revenge of another person? And that is a direct message from the beginning and the end of the Pasha. But keep your head on. Keep your head on, because yes, Esav didn't know how. The whole tribe, the, all the Shvatim, come, arrive at the cave of Maras Machpelah. And they're held up. They're held up. Chush, son of Don, says, what's going on? Couldn't talk though. He was a mute. What's going on, he asked. In the meantime, Naftali was dispatched to run back to Egypt because they needed to get the deed of the Marasa Machpelah to show that Yaakov indeed had the rights to the caver. Because who was standing there? Esav. Esav had come to protest Yaakov's burial. And even as Yaakov was dead, Esav was not satisfied. Esav was there to make trouble. Because halacha Esav seina liyakov. The halacha is that Esav hates Yaakov. So here, Esav is standing there and he says, Hold up. What right do you have to bury him? This is my spot. So Naftali, who was very, very swift, ran back to Mitzrayim to get the deed to prove that it belonged to Yaakov. In the interim, Chush was very disturbed. Who does he think he is? To stop, hold back the funeral? So Chush goes to the front of the line. He took the age of Elaine. And he takes a stick and he decapitates Esau. Puts him a head shorter. Make sure he has nowhere to put his hat. Esav's head then rolls. Now this tells us it rolls into the Ma'ara Samachpela. It rolls into right by the shoulder of Yitzchak Avinu. <laughs> what right does the Goy, the Rosha, have to be buried next to the tzaddik. Not allowed. How does Esav get his head buried next to his father? Here we need to understand what makes a rasha. A person thinks bad thoughts, thinks of doing a bad deed, is not aver and aver, is not is not doing a sin. The person, on the other hand, that does the deed, he cause, he does the sin. Esav Harasha was Yitzchak's son. Yitzchak and Rivka's son. 
Where does it come off that Esav should be so extremely different than Yaakov? They were twins. What separated them so? But the truth is, in essence, they were not separated. In essence, they were the same. However, Esav's body acted, reacted, and sinned in different ways that they shouldn't. Once his head was severed from his body, the head being his source, the head was not punishable. The body could not be buried with a tzaddik, because the body was that of a rasha. But the head was connected to its source. <coughs> and therefore the head rolls back to the father, to Yitzchak Avinu, and is buried next to him. Let us discuss a moment the brachas that Yaakov bestows on his children. Needless to say, they're a little bit in hints, hidden secrets. Yaakov begins before the brachas, he starts, and he says, Okay, I already finished with Rachel. I'm not going to go back to it. Hey, Gather. Gather around children. This is chapter 49, verse 1. Memtes, Pasuk Aleph. Hey, Asfu, gather around Vagidolachem. I will tell you. What was going to happen? What's going to happen to you at the end of the days? Before passing, Yaakov now gathers his children and says, I will tell you now what, when is the world going to end, when Mashiach will come. But he doesn't. He doesn't, says Rashi. Instead he starts telling them other things. If you're keeping score at home, the Gemara Psachim Nun Vav Amir Aleph 56, side 1. It says, Bikish says the Chazal. He wanted to reveal the end of time, when Mashiach would come. And the Shechina left him. He lost his Ruach HaKadosh. Yaakov wanted to tell the Eden, tell his children when Mashiach is going to come, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu would not allow that. What was he trying to do? Honestly speaking. What benefit was there in this to tell them when Mashiach would come? The opposite. We have a major problem with this. A major question. Not only this would not help, this would have caused them tremendous damage. Can you imagine being told that you're not going to live to see Mashiach? A person loses all hope from that. One of the 13 animamins, I believe that Mashiach is going to come in my day. We pray. We pray that we live in all our prayers to see the day of Mashiach with the Holy Temple, the Third Temple being rebuilt. If I tell you this is not going to happen, there's not. Why am I here? Why am I here? My fa- my mother's father, All he wanted was to live long enough to serve in the Beis HaMikdash. He's a Kayan. Wanted Bizeicha to live long enough to serve his HaMikdash. Unfortunately, 37 years later, he's still waiting, but he's no longer with us. Is it possible to understand the 
damage that he would have caused his children, to tell them, Mashiach is coming in thousands of years, as we are sitting today, thousands of years later, and Mashiach, as you might notice, has not here yet. We're still in this goals. They would have said, forget it. They would have thrown off the yarmulkes, cut off the payas. Is it then possible that this was Yaakov Avinu's intention? To, give, God forbid, put them in such a depression? What is meant Bikish Yaakov the Galat Saketz? There are two ways Mashiach will come <laughs> in the world of the world of WhatsApp. Little boy heard two things Mashiach come with. In the schus of Nashim Sitkanias, of the righteous women, but he also heard from somebody else that when all the pockets will be empty and there'll be no money, the world will have no money in their pockets, that's when Mashiach is going to come. So he says, Daddy, which one is it? I don't understand. What will bring Mashiach? Father laughs and says, Wait, wait. Wait till you meet a Nashim Sidkanius. Wait till you meet, you meet a righteous woman. And you'll find out how fast your, empty, your pockets will be empty. They <laughs> go hand in hand. If you keep your square at home, the Yamada said, Headed in Samachas and Aleph. 98, side 1. <coughs> the Yamada says, Mashiach will come, Achishana. If we Zachu, if we merit, Mashiach will come immediately. If not, it'll come in its determined time. In other words, there is a determined time. Some say the world is 6,000 years. Some say that is Gematria 515, and it was 515 Yevils from when Moshe spoke. 515 Shemitahs from when Moshe spoke, which comes out to the year 6093. Okay, whatever it might be, 6000, 6093. That is one of the ketzim that are given. Mashiach has to come by that point. No matter what the situation, no matter how the Jews are behaving. But if the Jews are zeicha in their work and what in the way they behave and act and live, he will come immediately. Yaakov did not think to tell his children the end time. He was not planning in the year whatever it was thousand. The Jews came to Egypt in the year two thousand four forty eight. No. They left Egypt 2448. They were in Egypt for 200 plus years. The year 2000 and change. He was not planning on telling them the year 6093, Mashiach has to come. Because that would have been an outlandish thing to do to them. Elamai, he told them a different thing. Something that's totally different to this. You can iluzachu achishano. If you're going to really devote yourself and give yourself over properly to the coming of Mashiach, to bringing of Mashiach, we are zecha. He will come immediately. This could have been, in other words, a year, two, ten, max, from the day of his passing. So it would have been a very close thing for them, relatively. Mm-hmm. So then the question comes back up again. <laughs> so <coughs> why didn't it happen then? <coughs> How was the gula didn't come then? If Yaakov would have told his children the cats, would have told them the magic secret, that him zachu, achishana, if you be zeichu, you do it right, you behave the way you're supposed to, he will come immediately, they would have come. They would have worked at it. 
They would have seen to it that the Golas would come to an end. They would never hold up the, the, the Gula in their days. Had Yaakov known the Gula was so close, had he told them, they would have become so much more careful to be zeched to the Gula. It would have given them that extra push to serve God the way they should, to be that much more careful making sure they're not holding up the gula. And we wouldn't have to suffer these thousands of years in Golas. So then why did this not go on? Why did he not do this? The intention of Yaakov Avinu is a simple one. He wanted Taka to tell his children the cats for that very reason. HaKadosh Baruch Hu did not want him to do that. HaKadosh Baruch did not want him to take away the Bechir HaChavshis, their freedom of choice. To allow them, that rather, to do what they had to do. When a person serves God with his own initiative, initiative with his own strength, with all the boundaries, restrictions, and what goes on in the world, The revelation of Yaakov would have ruined this. He would have taken them out of the actual world. They would no longer involve themselves in the actual world. They would have just involved themselves. Oh, that's not fair. We don't have any over here. Yeah, you can send it through the. Yeah. It's got fresco over there. before the fast therefore the Shekinah left him because HaKadosh Baruch did not want him to give this out but Yaakov himself knew that they would not serve God properly if he would tell this to them but he wanted them out of Golis it's his children he did not want to leave them in exile even if it meant that their service to God would not be impeccable. It would not be a total devotion overcoming a Yetzirah, overcoming the evil inclination, overcoming the only different trials and tribulations that we go through. The person, it would not be a natural work or service to God, it would be a supernatural. People would just not have any, they would not look right or left, they would sit with muzzles on their mouths, blinders on their eyes, so that they could do no wrong, so they could only see and hear and learn and practice Torah Mitzvahs. HaKadosh Baruch does not want that. HaKadosh Baruch wants the Jew to toil. Wants them to serve God full-heartedly. But, Yaakov wanted to do this. Where does he lose out totally? His goal, what he wanted to do here, does live on. A Jew needs to call out and to ask HaKadosh Baruch Bring the Geula b'mehera v'yameinu. And that's what we said before. That this is what we pray for in so many different forms and fashions. So many different prayers that we use to say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, please send us the Geula Amitis. Each time we do it, each time that we say, Ki mechakim anachnulach, mosai timleich b'tziyayin. We await you when Will you rule in Zion, in Zion once again? Each time we say each and every one of these tefillahs requesting HaKadosh Baruch Hu send Mashiach, as we see the bottom line, 
we say Hine, Hine, Mashiach Bo. We say we want Mashiach now. Each time we say it, we awaken, we push forward another hole, another way, another step to break through, to break us out in this horrific exile. And this is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to see in here. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to pray and to do. And this we find similarly in the blessings that Yaakov is giving to his children. Shimon Velevi Achim. Shimon and Levi, your brothers, each guy, each one of the bracha, the, the shvatim, were given their bracha. Shimon and Levi were given in a couple. Shimon and Levi Achim, your brothers. The apam hargu ish. In anger, you killed a man. What? Shimon and Levi killed a man? Let's look back in history. Shimon and Levi didn't kill a man. They killed the whole bloody city. But they didn't kill a man. They killed all the males in the entire Shechem. It wasn't one man. There were hundreds of them. What kind of expression? Hargu ish, one man. The fact was, says Yaakov, when you killed that whole city, it was nothing. It was like swatting a fly for you. You killed all those hundreds of people as if it was one person. There was no problem. You guys did that with ease, with the most utmost ease. Fregechaich. If you were so capable, why the lie? What did you do ultimately? You told Shem, everybody should have a bris, and by having a bris, we're going to make peace, we're going to become one, we're going to unite, you'll marry our daughters, we'll marry your daughters, we're going to become who are one family. And on the third day of the bris, you went and saw to it that you also chopped off their heads, not just the bris. Why the lie? Why the deceit? <coughs> Out of anger, you were not thinking straight. With this, Yaakov reprimands his children, Shimon and Levi. You killed them, you could have done it like one guy. It was complete and total ease. But you didn't do it that way. You went through the seat. This is not how HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to serve Him. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to serve Him in the utmost devoted fashion that we can. The utmost emuna, belief that Hashem will come through with the help. Not to, God forbid, deceive not to God forbid lie. There's a story of a an Aguna. Aguna is a woman that an abandoned woman whose husband unfortunately left her with three children and just disappeared. Rumor had it that he became he left the religion. Sorry, he left the religion, and was no reason to come back. <coughs> and abandoned, deserted his wife and children. This Aguna took a very painstaking trip, and she traveled to the city of Lubavitch to the Rebbe Rashab. came to the Rebbe Rashab I believe he was still in the Babich not in Rostov yet and she told the Gabbai she wants to see the Rebbe to tell him the story eh can't go in 
Nobody's going into the Rebbe. If you want, sit down, take a pen and paper, and write your story to the Rebbe. We'll give it to the Rebbe. And perhaps the Rebbe will answer you. Well, now, this woman, needless to say, the despair really hit bottom. First, the husband walks out, leaves her with no way of supporting the three children, no way of raising three children by her own. She's all alone, no husband, no children, no husband, no house. On top of that, she travels this arduous journey, and they're not even letting her see the Rebbe. Not letting her go in. She's writing a letter that who knows if the Gabbai is going to give it to the Rebbe, and if the Rebbe gets, gets it, if the Rebbe is going to bother reading it. She has no choice. She writes with bitter tears rolling down her face. Sorry. She writes the letter and gives it to the Gabbai. A very short while later, the Gabbai reappears and tells the Aguna, holds up the letter, the Rebbe wrote in the margin of the letter, go to Warsaw. Warsaw? Such a big city, Warsaw? Really? How will I find this guy? Where, where would I start looking in Warsaw? A bigger question, how am I getting there? I don't have any money. Sat down, wrote again to the Rebbe. Where? Instructions. Something about Warsaw. But no answer came about. <coughs> Sorry, the Chassidim saw this woman's plight. Immediately they sat down, they collected money between the Chassidim. And they collected enough money for her to travel round trip to Warsaw. And a month of lodging in Warsaw. You know how long she'd have to be there? At least for one month, if she's there, she'll be able to pay for the hotel, for the room and board. Okay. She takes a little bag, a satchel, and she's off to Warsaw. She's quite nervous about the whole thing, because... <laughs> be realistic chances are snowball in July shouldn't mention snow New York's not having it with, with the snow they're about to get or they got or the ones upstate or further up north whatever it is may they all go safe anyway she gets on the train and she travels to Warsaw she's crying and praying the whole way there she gets off the train in Warsaw. She says, We're to your tug. Now what? She has the paper with the name of the hotel that she's supposed to go to. But, but, she's exhausted. She's torn to pieces already. She's shattered. Her spirit is broken. Go where now? Go how where? No. She's standing there in the train station and she says, you know what? I'm getting back on the next train and going home. Well, you know what? Better yet. I'm going to find myself a place here and I'm going to live there. The children are being looked after. They'll be looked after now also. I just have no reason to live anymore. She was feeling very despondent, to say the least. Very rejected, very depressed. When a distinguished man, red beard, comes over and says, Aguten, was tust du Feels, say that? Hello, what are you doing here? Are you okay? You don't look good. You look fatigued, disturbed. What's wrong? 
And she says, my husband left me all of a sudden to this complete total stranger. She starts telling the story. My husband left me with three children and she went, he went away. And he ran away and I went to the Babich and I gave him the last few seconds, the last few, the last uh, effort that I could possibly do anything. I came to the Babich, I wrote to the Rebbe, the Rebbe told me to go to Warsaw. Benaymar, Amen. I have no idea where my husband is. I have no idea what he could possibly look like today. It's been two years. He probably shaved his beard. He probably works out in the gym now, so he looks different. <coughs> what, what What could I possibly do? So the man says to her, I'm very, very familiar with the people of Warsaw. She says, yes, you're surely familiar with the Jewish community, but that doesn't help me. He may not very, very well not be involved with the Jewish community whatsoever. Describe him for me, will you please? And she starts to give a different note, a different point, different things from what she remembers of this man two years ago. And the man, very graciously, says to her, Hey, I know a guy fitting that description. And he showed up in Warsaw about two years ago. He hangs out in the saloon. And he sits and plays cards all day. Come, come, I'll show you. And he starts to walk with her. And he shows her yonder. It's, it's a distance. But there's a saloon there. Go to the back room, he says. When you get into the saloon, that's where he usually hangs out. And lo and behold, this woman, Sarah, walks the half hour walk that it took to get to this bar and she comes into the bar this is not a place for a nice Jewish girl and she's walking around trying to cut through the haze of the cigars and the cigarettes and the stench and she goes and walks to the back room and she opens the door of the back room she can't see anything it's one big cloud as she's standing there waiting for the eyes to get used to the darkness and the cloud, all of a sudden, one of the guys jumps up and says, Sara? Sara? What are you doing here? How did you possibly find me? And she begins to tell him how she went to the Baba Chereva, the Baba Chereva told her, and this man says, it's impossible. No one had any idea who I was, where I came from, or anything. But if the Rebbe that you're talking about is so well-versed, and is so smart, I think I need to return to the Rebbe. Huh. And he does. He tells the guys, forget the game. And he leaves together with his wife. And they travel back home. And he decides that he's going to become Balchuva. And his wife is Baruch Hashem accepting him back home. She's good to go. Have a good Son, in the meantime feels it's only right to be makatev and to travel to the Rebbe to thank him. And so she comes to the Lubavitch and she has and she tells the Gabbai she wants to thank the Rebbe. The Gabbai says, listen, I want to take a letter in for you. The Rebbe is going to go through this room, through this hole. Hold your letter out. The Rebbe walks past, give it to him. She says, fine. And she's standing there by the door. And the door opens up. And she takes one look at the Rebbe and she faints. 
take her out, the doctor's taking care of her, the doctor waits, and finally she wakes up, the doctor's standing over her. And she says, was that the Rebbe? They said, yes. She says, he met me in the Warsaw train station. He told me where to go to see my husband. So the Gavai said, hold on. Tell me again, when was this? And she told him the exact date and the exact time of the day. So now I understand, he says. I went into the Rebbe at that hour, and the Rebbe was phased out. The Rebbe was not there. I could not, I saw him sitting there, but the Rebbe was just not, I could, there's no communication. I could not get through to the Rebbe. So now I know where the Rebbe really was. So we see a person needs to be mishtadl. A person needs to do their ishtadlus. A person needs to do what they can to make something work, to make it happen. And Hashem sees to it through His tzaddikim in the world that this does indeed come through. Now there's so much more to talk about the Pasha. But being that tomorrow is a Sarah Tevis, the tenth day of Tevis, obviously everyone would need to look up in their own region, their own calendars, the times of the fast. Um, I had sent out here that someone says the fast officially begins tomorrow at 5.49. According to the Al-Tarebbe, it's 45 minutes before that, which means 5.09. And the fast ends 12 hours later, 5.09. So that's just for starters. Um, which means that before 5.09, you can brush your teeth, probably you can have your coffee if you want also. If that's going to make it or break it for you. However, if you do choose to do that, you need to take out a condition before you go to sleep that tomorrow morning you're going to get up and you're going to drink something before the fast starts. (coughs) If you don't do that, you may not. There are many different fast days. Six to be exact. In the Tata, four from the prophets, and of the Chacham. Yom Kippur, some Gedalia. Sarabatavis, Shivasabatamus, Tishabov, and Tainas Esther. Yom Kippur is in the Tera, the tenth day of the seventh month. Tishri. That's there's no ifs, ands, and what's around it. <coughs> Shivasabatamus, seventeenth of Tamus was when the temple, the second temple, the walls were broken through. Tishabov, destruction of both temples. Gimel Tishay, Samgedalia, the day after Rosh Hashanah, for the death of Gedalia ben Achikam. Asarabatevis, when the Melech Bovel laid siege on Yerushalayim until finally they were ultimately destroyed, the was destroyed. Tainus Esther was adopted by the sages and the people of Israel in memory of the fast that took place during the story of time of Mordechai and Esther. Three of these fasts, Yom Kippur, Tishabov 
and Asara Betevis are observed on the exact day that they are prescribed. In Kippah is according to the Teda. Tishbav is when the destruction of the temples. <coughs> Asara Betevis is the tenth day of Tevis, that's tomorrow. Excuse me, Tainus Esther actually happened during Pesach time. But the Chacham later established that it be the day before Purim. And even the day before Purim, sometimes that doesn't happen. If Purim, for example, is on a Sunday, then it would not be the day before Purim. It would rather be the Thursday before. Shivasa Tammuz, actually the first Beis HaMikdash, it happened on the ninth day of Tammuz. But the second Beis HaMikdash, which was worse, the destruction, because... After the first base of Middash, we did have a second base of Middash rebuilt, whereas after the first base of Middash, well, after the second base of Middash, nothing has been rebuilt as of yet. So therefore, the second base of Middash destruction is considered worse at the moment, and therefore, the fast is on Shivasa Thomas, not the ninth of Thomas. So that is also a flailing date. Some Gedalia, Gedalia Menachikam, was not necessarily killed on the third day of Tishrei. According to most, it was killed on the first day of Tishrei, which is Rosh Hashanah. However, since we don't fast Rosh Hashanah, therefore the fast is established for the third day of Tishrei. From when Yeshua brought the Jews into Israel, 850 years, the 20 generations, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren were born. Tilden decided to put a stop to that. 440 years elapsed until Shleimah Melech built the second Besamidash. And that lasted for 410 years. Hashem promised Avram Avinu the land of Israel, provided that the Yidin act the way they need to act. If not, says the Rebbe Shalom, they will be spit, just like, spit out just like their predecessors. And the example that's given on the spot in Vayikra is of a prince a loyal, a royal prince that ate something that did not agree with him, something that was vile, and he needed to regurgitate. He needed to throw it up. And so too, if God forbid the Jews are in Israel and not behaving, not doing what they're supposed to do, they too will be spat out by the Holy Land, says the British And this therefore is ultimately what happens. Throughout the 20 generations, there were those that had their bumps in the road. Different punishments were put out, meted out to Yehuda, Yishalayim. There were Nevi'im that were sent to them to reprimand them. But ultimately it was Asara Batavis that was the Makkah Patish. Asara Batavis that brought the last hammer down on the Jewish nation, the last punishment that ultimately destroyed the Holy Temple, the break of the walls of Yerushalayim, the siege of Yerushalayim. And therefore Asara Batavis is an extremely, extremely important fast. And although many people say, I only fast on Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur, understand Asara B'tavis, if it comes out on Shabbos, you would fast on Shabbos. Asara B'tavis, only Yom Kippur and Asara B'tavis, I like that. Asara B'tavis does come out on Fridays. When it comes out on a Friday, we fast into Shabbos until we make Yiddish. So Asara B'tavis is a very, very special, not a special, very holy day and therefore it is imperative that we do fast and try not to find any excuses for fasting. But we only pray now that Yehovchu, Yom Elul, the Sosain, Ula Simcha, may these days be turned over to happiness and to joy, and may we not have to fast, and may we be Zeicha, 
to the Takasi, the rebuilding of the base Hamidosh Ashlishi, this very Shabbos, as we begin and embark on the Nuchumish of Shemais, Shabbat Shalom, an easy fast to all.